This is a special feature of the Radio Plasma podcast. The Puerto Rican Cultural Project, La Familia Hispana Inc., along with El Sol Latino and the Holyoke Public Library, hosted on February 23rd of 2017 the book reading Cien Años de Feminismos Dominicanos, A Hundred Years of Dominican Feminisms by Gineta Candelario, PhD at the City University of New York. This is a collection of primary documents related to the birth and development of feminism in the Dominican Republic. Gineta Candelario is an associate professor of sociology and of Latin Americans and Latino studies at Smith College. This reading took place at the community room of the Holyoke Public Library as a joint effort to build an audio archive of events of social and cultural relevance for our history and communities, El Sol Latino, a local independent newspaper, the Holyoke Public Library, and Radio Plasma documented this lecture to make it available to the public for future reference. Listen to Gineta Candelario presenting Cien Años de Feminismos Dominicanos. So, do I need it? No. No, right? It's not working? Good. It's like, like all Latinos and Italians, I talk with my hands. So, thank you, thank you, Manuel, obviously, and uh, um, the organizers of the event. It's really an honor and a pleasure for me to be here and to open the series. I, I hadn't quite realized that was the opening act, so, so yeah. I'm especially honored about that. Um, and I do appreciate that you made the effort of coordinating it with the flag raising in City Hall. Thank you, Diosdado, for that, that lovely gesture. It really um, was very moving for me and to receive the, the award from the Familia Hispana, um, as well as the commendation from the city and the state. So um, a couple of things. One is that I really appreciated that, that you point out this history actually of, of ties, right, and um, legacies of leadership that connect the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and, of course, Puerto Rican and Dominican diasporas in the United States, because that is absolutely actually part of the story of feminism in the Dominican Republic, which is the, what this collection is about. The title is 100 Years of Dominican Feminisms. In Spanish, um, it should be Feminismo Dominicano, would be the proper um, grammatical form for this title, but my co-editors and I made a point of pluralizing it, and that is actually pretty jarring for, for Dominican Spanish and Dominican um, readers. But we did so purposefully, and in fact, had to correct and correct several times the proofs that we kept getting because they kept wanting to make it grammatically correct. Um, because what this collection does is to showcase the fact that there are many feminisms in the Dominican Republic, that it's not just one feminist legacy, but rather several feminist legacies and agendas, first of all. Um, second of all, um, the other thing that the collection really tries to exemplify and make material and manifest to like showcase literally is that feminism is autochthonous to the Dominican Republic that it wasn't an import say from the United States or from white suffragists who came and you know showed Dominican women how to advocate for their rights that is absolutely not the case um, in fact it's part of the history of Panantillian organizing the Panantillanismo right and of the shared struggles of Cuba Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and Haiti actually to organize themselves against colonialism and against U.S. imperialism especially, um, and to establish nation states that didn't reproduce to the extent possible the legacies of slavery and servitude. Okay? Now, this project wasn't completed and we still struggle with those questions of racism and nationalism and patriarchy and so forth, but the agenda was there. 
um, and it was there in this conversation across, across the islands, but also across the Atlantic and across the diasporas, the African diasporas in the Americas and the transatlantic <coughs> conversation. Um, so that is really one of the, the things that was a surprise to me. Let me tell you a little bit about how the book comes to be, the story of this project. Um, as Manuel mentions, did you want to? No, it's okay. Okay. What? Go ahead. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> as Manuel mentions, this is not just my project. I'm one of three editors. Um, the other two folks are historians. I am not a historian. I'm a sociologist. But um, I have always tended to do historical work. Uh, because my projects have been about questions of national identity formation and race and gender. And you can't really talk about those things without looking to history, right? Without understanding how did we get here? What happened before, right? Um, so I end up hanging around uh, historians quite a bit and hanging around in archives quite a bit. So Elizabeth Manley and April Mays are historians who are at the University of Xavier University in New Orleans and at Pomona College in California. I am at Smith, as, as Manuel mentioned, which is you know, right up Route 5 here in Northampton. Um, so that should signal for you something. This is very much a transcontinental project. We worked on it from Massachusetts and Louisiana and California, and also Washington, New York City, Barcelona, Paris, Haiti, Puerto Rico, Mexico, wherever one of us happened to be over the seven years that it took to put this project together. Um, is where we worked from. That means that we also worked using technology like Skype and Google Docs and Dropboxes to try and actually compile this manuscript. And we also incorporated the labor of several teams of undergraduate students from our universities who traveled with us to Santo Domingo, but also who traveled to these other archives in places like San Juan, um, California, Mexico City, etc. So it's very, very much a transcontinental and transnational and interdisciplinary historical project, right? So um, as we did that, we realized somewhere along the way that we were modeling in our practice in the 21st century as feminist Latina scholars what the women who started feminism and sustained feminist agendas in the Dominican Republic themselves were doing. They too were collaborating across national borders, across technological barriers, across place and time, okay? and often across agendas and across you know, backgrounds, right? So sociologists and historians, well, some of these women were medical doctors, some of them were school teachers, some of them were engineers, some of them were lawyers, some of them were just moms, right, who were trying to advocate for um, policies that would improve the lives of women and children, right? So, um, that was part of what uh, made for us the project such a wonderful experience. Um, uh, it took, as I said, five years. It was a product of a conference that one of the editors, April Mays, organized in Santo Domingo in 2011. That conference was called Intercambiando Historias, and it was meant to be a, a meeting of uh, women's studies scholars from the United States and the Dominican Republic who were doing work on Dominican women's history. So she, she brought us all together over the course of three days in Santo Domingo, and we presented papers to one another based on the research that we were doing, which was on, what, on this question of um, women's participation in the formation of the state, women's participation in the economy, women's participation in the professions, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we're presenting all these papers in English and in Spanish, and sometimes Spanglish, and on the last day of the conference, um, Magali Pineda, 
who actually spent some time in Puerto Rico in exile, okay, from the Trujillo regime in the 1950s, um, who was, may she rest in peace, because she passed away in April, was a highly esteemed and beloved feminist in the Dominican Republic. She founded the first feminist research entity in the Dominican Republic called CIPAF, Centro para la Investigación para la Acción Femenina, and she purposely used the word femenina, not feminista, as an attempt to abarcar, right, to bring in women who maybe were a little uncomfortable with the term feminist at this point in the 70s, but understood themselves as having women's interests, right? So Magali found CPAF and started promoting the work of doing research to serve women's agendas in the DR, public policy agendas, okay? Um, she was also one of the folks who helped found the uh, Encuentros Feminista de América Latina y el Caribe, right? How many, anybody here heard of those encuentros? Lo conocen. Desde 1980, okay, I'm gonna to switch to Spanish. Who doesn't speak Spanish, just so I know who I'm leaving out? Okay, I'll try to be bilingual as much as possible. Who is, ¿quién prefiere que hablen español? Okay, voy a tratar de hacer las dos cosas. Eh, en 1981, en 1981, eh, se organizaron, se reunieron 500 y pico mujeres en Bogotá, Bogotá Colombia se denominaron el Encuentro Feminista de América Latina y el Caribe. So about 500 women from across Latin America and the Caribbean met in Bogotá, Colombia in 1981. Magali was one of the organizers of that, of that reunion, that meeting we called it. At that meeting, Magali, who was there with about 10 or 12 other Dominican feminist women, eh, Magali estuvo ahí con un equipo de 10 o 12 mujeres dominicanas feministas, algunas de ellas catedráticas, investigadoras, historiadoras, sociólogas, etcétera, pero muchas de ellas, de esas dos, eran escritoras, periodistas, artistas, etcétera, okay? So, group of about 12 or so Dominican women. Now, think about this for a minute, right? It's 500 women. 12 is a fairly large number of that 500, right? That's almost actually proportionally overrepresentation of Dominican women. Because if there's 22 or so Latin American, and really if you had the Caribbean, talk about 30 or so countries, if it, and you think places like Brazil, right, or Argentina, and then Santo Domingo, right, Dominican Republic, you would think, okay, there should be one Dominican feminist, maybe two at this thing. No, 12, right? It's 13, actually. I saw the picture the other day. I couldn't believe it. Showed up. That should already be a clue, right? There were 13 who managed to make it? this expensive trip to Bogota, Colombia. Okay, so signal, right? They show up, because she's one of the organizers, and in this meeting, uh, they managed to put forth a proposal that these women, as part of their first agenda in this international meeting of feminists from across Latin America and the Caribbean, should declare November 25th the first international day against violence against women que deberían de declarar el 25 de noviembre como el primer día conmemorando eh, en contra de la violencia en contra de la mujer, el 25 de noviembre. Why November 25th? Because that was the anniversary of the murder of the Mirabal sisters, las hermanas Mirabal, the butterflies, las mariposas. Some of you may have read Julia Alvarez's book about these women. These were three sisters who, by the way, did not call themselves feminists, but who behaved like feminists. Why? Because they organized to counter the Trujillo regime in every way that they could, okay? Uh, one, because of her Catholic faith, Maria Teresa. The other, because as an attorney, 
uh, one of the first women to attain a law degree actually in Santo Domingo, and the wife of a, a, a man who was also an organizer and activist and part of the clandestine movement, um, had been arrested and tortured by the Trujillo regime. Okay? And the third, because she got in with her sisters and eventually became convinced that organizing against the dictatorship was, was necessary. Okay? These women were tortured, raped, and murdered by the regime on November 25th, 1960. So the Dominican team arrives at the Encuentro, they make the proposal, it is approved, and it's one of the very first kind of international statement acts of the Encuentro Feminista. That date subsequently becomes picked up by the United Nations, and that is why today, November 25th, is the International Day Against Violence Against Women. I tell you that story because it exemplifies in a lot of ways this history. Right, of a handful of Dominican women arriving at international conferences, such as the International Council of Women meeting in the 1901 Buffalo World's Fair, the Pan American Exposition, which was put together to celebrate the colonization of Puerto Rico and Cuba by the United States. <laughs> That's what they meant by Pan American. They're ours now, right? <laughs> um, and to showcase US power and hegemony in the Americas. It was also, by the way, where President McKinley was assassinated by a Polish anarchist who uh, murdered him in September of, of 1901, just a couple of weeks after the International Council of Women's meeting ended. That meeting ran for three weeks, and its agenda, which was organized from the United States, by the way, right, was to promote suffrage and women's issues, which meant a broad variety of things in the US and North America at the time, to Latin American women. The white women who organized this meeting and who established the ICW imagined themselves as being the vanguard of women's movements, of women's political participation, right, and of women's agendas. Why did they imagine that? Well, <laughs> because the United States right, was establishing itself as a hegemonic world power uh, and as white women in a country that was very much in the throes of Jim Crow and white supremacy, this made sense to them. Okay? So they had a couple of problems. They want to, on the one hand, incorporate and reach out to Latin American women, because some of them do recognize that there were Latin American feminists who were advocating for women's citizenship rights and economic rights and political rights. But they also did not want to address the issues that black women in the United States, and specifically, by the way, in Buffalo, Mary Talbert, who was one of the founders of the Niagara Movement, which becomes the NAACP, okay, uh, were making against the ICW. Right? So you have the white suffragists trying to be internationalists, but trying to present themselves as the leaders, the vanguard of women's movements. Hmm? What happens? These women write letters to the governments of Latin America and the Caribbean, including Cuba and Puerto Rico, which are now US protectorates. And they say, could you identify two women, just two? We'll have 1,000, but you get two, <laughs> from your countries to come and represent each one of your nations at this Pan American World's Fairs meeting of the International Council of Women. And so they write letters to their State Department. The State Department sends these letters to the heads of state in these places. The head of state in Santo Domingo at the time was the man who was the husband, the former husband, the widow of Salome Ureña de Enriquez. Salome Ureña de Enriquez 
along with Eugenio Maria de Hostos, the great Puerto Rican educator, had been the founder of the first normal school for girls in Santo Domingo. She did that at the request of Gregorio Luperón, who was a really good friend of Ramón Emeterio Betances, and whose sister, Demetria Betances, was brought over from Puerto Rico to help educate girls in Puerto Plata, and who was the teacher of the woman who I opened my personal book with, Mercedes Mota, who herself was the daughter, by the way, of a Chinese stowaway and a Dominican woman. Okay? Mercedes Mota publishes and writings beginning at the age of 16 in the newspapers of the Dominican Republic, which are you know, about six or seven at that point, that then also get published in places like New York by people like Jose Martí, who's in New York City organizing the independence fight, right, until his untimely death. And she comes to be recognized as a woman who's writing about women's citizenship rights in this emerging state. So Pancho, Salome's widow, because at this point Salome has died, gets this letter, and on the margin of it, and it's one of the letters that's in this book, and I have to tell you, by the way, it took me five years to find this letter. Five years. And I'll tell you that story if you ask me about it later, how we actually found it. Because I was trying to figure out, how did Mercedes Moda, this 20-year-old Afro-Chinese Dominican orphan, okay, from Puerto Plata, also known as Casa en Su Madre, <laughs> get all the way to Buffalo, New York in August of 1901. And not only that, but she is one of only four Latin American women that the ICW deigns to offer the podium to over the course of the three weeks and 21 days that they were holding speeches and events for the public. How did this little girl end up there? A. B, her speech was published by the Buffalo Press and reported on throughout the United States and Latin America. By the way, it took me another five years to find the speech. <laughs> that one was hard too, okay. So I was like, how did that happen? It was because when Pancho received the letter from the ICW, he writes on the margin, send not Mercedes Mota, her sister Antera, and Luisa Osema Pellerano, who's right here on the cover. These two school teachers. Antera could not go because she was married and had four children and a very violent and abusive husband, actually. So she sends her little sister Mercedes, who's actually the published author. And so Mercedes goes and begins what becomes a lifelong career of being a feminist who uses her teaching and her writing to advocate for women's rights, but also to critique and dissent and advocate against US imperialist hegemonist intervention in Latin America and the Caribbean. <laughs> Beginning at the Buffalo World's Fair, where she talks about women's evolution, the development of the state, the problems of citizenship, and the problem of incorporation for women, particularly women from poor countries that are struggling to develop in the context of capitalism in the Americas, as rural societies that are coming out of slavery and colonization, right? So those are the kinds of stories that to me were just so compelling, right? And, and led my, me, but also my two colleagues to devote 
you know, five to seven years to this particular project, but also about a decade to our own books about these histories. And again, Mercedes's story, like the other ones, exemplifies the pattern that Dominican women, although they are few in number, because there's only 10 million Dominicans today, by the way, today, in the 21st century. When my mother left the island in 1960, there were four million. When Mercedes Mota was in Buffalo in 1901, there were 500,000. Right? It's a small group of people who again and again insist on finding themselves at these moments of international meetings where women's issues and women's rights are being debated and discussed, and every time a Dominican woman makes her way to the stage and has her say, <laughs> which is the other pattern. 1901 in Buffalo, 1928 in Havana, Cuba, where the Comisión Interamericana de Mujeres, the Inter-American Commission of Women, is established, again, with in part the effort of white women who have just recently attained the vote in the United States, 1920, remember the 19th Amendment is passed, and who imagine themselves as leaders who will bring this example to Latin America and the Caribbean, but arrive in Havana and are surprised to find that the Cuban women are like, oh yeah, no, we got this, thank you. We're happy to help you with the Pan American Union meeting. We'll share the stage with you, but your example is yours, and here's ours. These are the issues that we're concerned with. And then some of them we share in common, suffrage. But others, we have to have a conversation about. Okay. For example, before that 1928 meeting in Havana, where the daughter of a former president, Blinta Vos Rigal, who was living there in Cuba in exile, was one of the four Latin American women allowed to speak again, and whose speech also was published in the newspaper, and it was one of the letters that Raquel, who has a fine eye for picking these things out, uh, found in the book. Before 28, the 1922 Pan American Women's Conference, organized by the League of Women Voters. Uh, again, similar strategy, sends letters to Latin American diplomats and nations and asks them to send two or three women to this meeting. And the Dominican women, in their case, this time it wasn't the president who identified two women and asked them, would you come and represent? It was the US military occupation government. Because the Dominican Republic was invaded in 1916 by the United States, which ran a military governance from 16 to 28, and in Haiti from 15 to 34. I'm sorry, 16 to 24, 15 to 34. So when Ercilia Pepin, also a school teacher, gets the letter from Admiral Knapp, who was the military governor in charge, asking her to represent the Dominican Republic at the Pan-American Conference of Women held in Baltimore. She writes back, under absolutely no circumstances would I represent my country, which is currently being occupied by your country, at the sham of a meeting which is supposed to be at citizenship and democracy. No, thank you. And that letter gets published in the paper. She says, how can you talk about citizenship and democracy when you are occupying our country? Oh, and by the way, you're occupying Nicaragua and Guatemala and Cuba, okay? That's not citizenship, that's not democracy. So Dominican women refuse to go. But the letter, right, is on the podium. And the issue is raised at the conference. Another thing it took me several years to find, did the women go or not go? Because there was you know, back and forth. They did go, they didn't go. Yes, she went, no, she didn't go. And what actually ended up happening was that the military governor tried four different women 
and Celia Pepin, Teresa Parades, <laughs> este y la otra, and every single one of them ended up saying, no, thank you. And in the end, the person who represented Santo Domingo was the wife of the ambassador, the consul, to, the Dominican, to uh, Washington, D.C., who then used the opportunity to make a speech about the fact that these four women had said no because many of the conference attendees were unaware that the Dominican women had made a public statement of non-attendance. Okay? So they got their words in the podium and on the record, even in absentia. He <laughs> <So laughs> dicho, right? So, 1901, 1922, 1928, the Inter-American Commission of Women. 1931, Rafael Leonidas Trujillo ascends to the power of the Dominican Republic, trained, by the way, and installed by the U.S. Marines on their way out. Okay. These women who had been organizing as feminists, who had been articulating an agenda that tried to develop a vision of citizenship that included women's interests, and the interests of children, and the vulnerable, and the poor, and the vastly rural majority of the Dominican Republic. Agendas like public health that would eliminate tuberculosis, and leprosy, and syphilis, and the trans transmission of sexual diseases without stigmatizing women who were sex workers, which by the way, was radical in a country that is officially Catholic, as the Escudo points out with its Bible in the middle, okay? that advocated for the expansion of public education that was secular in a Catholic country, okay? that advocated for the development of infrastructure that was not just to serve the sugarcane industry for export, but that would serve internal economic development, okay? that advocated for women's education, not simply in the interests of others, but also for the well-being of, the, of all. Right? These are really radical agendas. Unfortunately, the only opportunity, or the first opportunity they got, was under dictatorship. And this is one of the ironies, and that's volume two. <laughs> Which is why it's so much bigger than volume one. Because ironically, and I'll close with this, it was under the Trujillo dictatorship, which had its own agenda of public propaganda, right, and producing the illusion of democracy in what was in fact an incredibly repressive and brutal and violent regime, an illusion, by the way, that it's sustained in part by not only controlling all the media, but by preventing emigration. Of four million or so Dominicans in 1961, when Trujillo was finally assassinated, six months after his assassination of the Mirabal sisters, only 10,000 Dominicans were abroad. So sit with that for a minute. Four million people, only 10,000 were out, out of the country. And if those 10,000, half were functionaries of the regime, the military personnel, the propaganda machine, the economic elites whose interests were served. People like Porfirio Rubirosa, who was married to Zaza Gabor, who passed away recently, by the way. And whom it is said 007 was modeled after, by the way. Did you know that? Fun fact, right? The other 5,000? Exiles, like my mom, who left in October of 1960, a few weeks before the Mirabal sisters were murdered. Okay. Where were they? They were in San Juan. They were in Mexico City. They were in Caracas. They were in New York City. They were in Paris and Barcelona. And even in those places, the dictator's arm reached them and assassinated them as needed. Okay. That's the kind of closed society we're talking about. There was no going out, and there was very little alternative information, and I don't mean alternative facts. <laughs> I mean, 
information that was not censored or controlled by the state coming in. So in that context then, these women made the best that they could of a really difficult situation and they were able to use what they could of the regime to promote the women's agendas that they had had in place since the late 19th century. These agendas very often coincided with the regime's own. A large infrastructure that allows showcasing the country as progresista, as making progress, as economically developed, things like new roads, new bridges, new schools, new maternity hospitals, new maternal child health programs, new nutrition programs, new public health programs to prevent leprosy, typhoid, malaria, uh, tuberculosis, those were the big ones, right, and malnutrition, those all make the regime look good. And if along the way they happen to improve the life chances of the vast majority of the population, sure, why not? Okay. And that is what happened with feminism under Trujillo, is that it was this you know, arrangement with the devil. And in the end, Yerba Mala si muere, because Trujillo was brought to justice on May 25th, 1961, and these women remained. And the agendas that they had helped to begin to institutionalize under a repressive apparatus then became the basis for what is really a much more liberal, late 20th century agenda of feminism. Much less tied to the state, although again, it gets complicated with folks like Balaguer, who you know, was Trujillo's right-hand man in many ways. Uh, but still, this project right, of citizenship development and of working with the circumstances you have, but also using the international connections. So what you see finally is that it was a Dominican woman who was the uh, third, second person to head the commission, in Comisión Interamericana de Mujeres, the one that was founded in Havana. The first director was Doris Stevens, a well-known suffragist who, um, and anyone seen the movie I Enjoyed Angels, which tells the story of suffrage in the US? You should watch it, it's a really good movie. These were the women who were put into insane asylums and forced fed uh, uh, when they went on a hunger strike in the Washington DC area. Doris Stevens was the first director of the IACW, the Comisión Interamericana. The second, Iron Jawed Angels, because they had iron jaws, they refused to open their mouths and so they forced them with like medical equipment. Yeah. The second woman, Minerva Benardino, Dominican, who ran the IACW for over a decade and was one of only four women who signed the UN Charter alongside Eleanor Roosevelt and who was a strong advocate for the incorporation of gender language in all of the UN charters that proceeded from her election to the IACW. Who left behind, in other words, an international law apparatus for women's rights and women's issues. It's pretty cool, right? At the same time, she was absolutely a henchman of the Trujillo regime and helped to murder and, <laughs> and kidnap people like Jesus de Galindez who was kidnapped on his way home from having defended his doctoral dissertation at Columbia University, which exposed the Trujillista regime. Minerva's brother, Johnny Abe, was one of the well, most well-known assassins of the regime. And it's said that her apartment was where his body was held until he was spirited away. It's complicated, right? After the, the Trujillato ends, after Minerva steps down, the second, the third woman to head up the ICW is another Dominican woman, Carmen Natalia. But she was an exile who left the Dominican Republic 
in the late 1940s after engaging in an unheard of series of letters that she published and that she publicized in the radio where she calls out again and again and again the ecstasies of the regime, the torture, the terror, the rape, the murder of the regime. Not only does she survive doing that, but she manages to get her whole family up because of her public strategy and spends the next 10 years in Puerto Rico organizing the resistance movement from Puerto Rico in collaboration with women in New York, Caracas, Venezuela, and so on and so forth. And when Trujillo is assassinated and Minelva loses grace, Carmen Natalia steps up. Okay. So this is you know, part of the pattern, and it's what we um, uh, made the effort, and I'll wrap up by saying this, that what we were trying to do was to show that these are the patterns of, on the one hand, very much sort of indigenous. It comes from this place. It is responding to the local circumstances, challenging and, and dangerous as they are, always in collaboration and in connection and communication with international feminist forums and movements, um, but also really insisting on representing Dominican reality as it is, right? Its similarities and its differences. Um, and um, what we were hoping to do with this is not offer our own interpretation of it, because each one of us will do that. You know, I'm writing my book, and April's writing hers, and Beth is writing hers. Beth's book actually just came out, Elizabeth Manley, and she focuses on the um, feminism from Trujillo to Balaguer. So it's a really fabulous read. I recommend it highly. April is working on, actually, um, early 19th century history, and I'm focusing on Mercedes Mota from Emiterio Betances, uh, roughly, right, the 70s, to 1942, when women get the vote in Santo Domingo. So we'll each offer our own interpretation. But what we wanted to do, which we felt was so much more important, was to compile a fraction, by the way, because this really is just a fraction of the thousands of pages that we've each collected, of the documents, these women's writings, these women's publications, their pamphlets, their letters, their poetry, the plays. They wrote a play called Las Feministas that they put on in a public square in Puerto Plata in 1890. They called themselves feminists, and they used this word, and they did a play. And the play, by the way, was a critique of marriage. <laughs> it's pretty radical stuff, okay? And where they did it was right across from the cathedral. Puerto Plata, okay? So, you know, these women are nervy, right? En el 1990. So, it's a collection of their work, not ours, right? Our hands are on this because we chose which ones to include and to offer as an example. The hope was, and, and again, I keep looking at her because what she did was so lovely when she selected some of the letters from volume one that she asked me about them and she, you know, spot on got these sort of exemplars. Um, what we hope the collection does is to make visible what they were doing, how they were doing it, and why they were doing it. And then allow the reader to make of it what he or she will. Right? So, and we're hoping the readers will be high school students and college students and experts as well. And you know, the average person who, who wants to know, yes, I ha there is a legacy. There were women who came before me who thought about these things. And the final thing I'll say is, and there were men. There were men who called themselves feminists yeah, and who advocated for feminism and women's rights in Santo Domingo, which may be hard for us to believe today, given this current crisis of feminicide and so on and so forth. But in fact, they did because they understood that women's rights and women's agendas were for the greater social good. 
Mm -hmm. We're looking for a society that could allow everyone to thrive. Mm -hmm. okay? That was the agenda. And certainly men could get behind that. Okay? So I'll leave it there. Any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Thank you all for, for listening. Thank you so much for coming and sharing. Natalie. Natalie, you've met, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of work in different fields. Um, this is truly inspiring to me because, you know, I always get myself involved in what, a, you know, people might call feminist-driven things, you know, being in, 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 a, in an artistic area or having to do with some kind of rally or having to do with my work in fair housing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just thought I can't miss this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I believe Katie Kane is one of your students. Oh, she was, yeah. So she, I'm going to be mentoring her okay. um, as she starts her career. So That's it's just an honor. Thank you so much for sharing such wealth of information. And I'll definitely look forward to purchasing. Oh, I want to say, by the way, Manuel mentioned, yes, these are available, but they're also at UMass and at Smith, and you can get them through interlibrary loan, like okay. Raquel did that with her local library. Because And I, you know, my disclaimer, because I feel embarrassed about it, but we have to charge a certain amount because the three quarters and I personally ship them. And yep. we call them the gemelos, the twins, because they weigh 10 pounds. <laughs> so they were expensive to ship, you know, 50 copies. It really, it cost us thousands of dollars. So the, the price of 125 for the two volumes is, is literally what it costs to ship them. So we're hoping the library will buy one here in Oluk, make it available maybe. Um, but, you know, and certainly you're welcome to buy a private copy or, through your, you know. But they're available also through the libraries. Yeah. I was fascinated by Maybe. Carmen Natalia. I see. Fascinated by that story. Yeah. Of all, all the people you mentioned, Carmen, Carmen Natalia was the one that stuck with me. I would she love had, to learn more about her. I have her. to tell you, it's one of my favorite, because Carmen Natalia was a poet. She was a poet and a writer. Um, and just like really, una, una mujer con, con mucha cordura, right? She had a tremendous, tremendous courage to do what she did. But she wrote a poem called um, Llanto para el hijo nunca llegado, yeah. which um, in, has been superficially often interpreted as, this means um, wailing for the son that never arrived, okay? And so people often interpret that as a uh, poem where she bemoans the fact that she miscarried and wasn't able to carry a child to term. That is true in her biography, but when you read it, carefully and in the context of the moment that she wrote it, the son that she's talking about is democracy. Mm -hmm. Is democracy, right? Is democracy and liberty. And it is the kind of piece that when you read it, um, si yo fuera declamadora, I could you know, really do it justice, but it is here in the section on, on the arts and uh, women in the arts as um, advocating for feminism. Um, it really, se le para uno los pelos, you know? And so we cited in our introductory essay um, as the, uh, you know, the never-ending project, right? The project of trying to um, give birth to a democracy, right? Which is, is, is still debatable, right? Like in the DR. Right? So I'm glad you said, I encourage you to, I um, wish I could find it to read you a little bit of it, but it's in here. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm so glad somebody did this research and um, brought it to the light uh, because as a Dominican and here in Holyoke, Springfield, it, it was always hard for me to explain where my, 
why I was the way the way I was and wh why I was doing what I was doing. So that's just, thank you. I'm really glad. Yeah, I was telling Raquel in our conversation when we were talking about it that you know one of the first things I read when I was beginning to research women's history in the DR was this little piece published in like 1972 by a woman named Shoshana Tanser who lived in Santo Domingo for a couple of years, who was an attorney, who went there as part of this you know, um, transitional uh, um, team to help bring public health projects. She writes this article that she's trying to explain Dominican women to US women. Okay, right? Um, and among the things that she says is, you know, she's really confused, because on the one hand, it seems to her that Dominican women have a certain amount of like, you know, liberty and sort of openness and, and you know, sort of self-presentation, right? But, you know, machismo and male power and male authority is so big and strong, and it also looks to her like women, you know, are submissive and that they are sort of cowing to this sort of overwhelming male authority, right? Here's the problem with that, right? That first of all, she, you know, was misreading a lot of cultural cues, right? Um, because she was looking for the kind of response and resistance to patriarchy and sexism that made sense to white liberal feminists, okay? So if you're asking those questions, okay, what you see might be that. But if you're asking other kinds of questions, and if you're paying attention, right, to, to other kinds of issues, you'll see, in fact, that Dominican women are not passive. They might be biding their time, okay, but they're not, you know, accepting or, or, you know, they might be strategizing, right, about how to navigate and deal with and confront this, right, um, problem of, say, male violence or, you know, the whole host of issues that all our societies have to navigate, right? So you, you have to, you know, you have to know how to see and know how to look in order to see, right? I remember as a child, my aunt, which is a very smart woman, she had written a book and she let us read it about all that stuff that was going on with Las Hermanas Mirabal. She was actually, you know, in those times there was a lot of violence, so she was actually looking like behind a window and telling everything that was going on. When you live in regimes of terror, resistance takes many forms. You find it? Oh, can you read it, Josie? Oh, yeah, I'm going to recruit Josie. <laughs> I should have Raquel who reads beautifully, but you have to read it, Josie. This font is too chiquito, wait. You have your glasses. Se me están enseñando los 40, wait. Let me see if, uh, if I put some light on it, it's better. Okay. If not, I'll have Miriam read it. Huh? Oh, perdón. <laughs> cut. <laughs> los 21, los 21. Okay, cut. Te invoqué desde el fondo del abismo. Te llamé desesperadamente, gritando el dulce nombre a tus oídos. Pero tú estabas lejos. Tan lejos, hijo mío, como las rútilas estrellas, durmiendo un largo sueño interminable, y no me oíste. Entonces, hundí mi rostro en el polvo del camino y te lloré, con un llanto sin consuelo que sembró sus cristales sobre la tierra dura. Te lloré con el llanto más amargo y recóndito que jamás ha llorado ojo luminario en el mundo. Nueve llantos de luna y un llanto décimo y sin término sobre la tierra dura. Mm. 
It's very long. That's a, that's a small part. Un llanto sin término. Por el hijo nunca ha llegado. So thank you. I'm glad to, to hear that. Anybody else? Okay. So thank you everyone for coming. I'm happy to talk to you more. Me alegro que todos hayan venido. Este va a ser el primer evento del Puerto Rican Speaker Series, donde vamos a seguir eh, invitando a, a intelectuales, activistas dominicanos. Ya por lo menos aquellos que no sabían saben cuál es la relación entre los dominicanos y los puertorriqueños, es mucho más de lo que muchos conocen. Así y, es. Y definitivamente esto era para tener un foro y tener una discusión más académica, como diríamos. Pero, muy interesante, por favor aprovechen la, la oportunidad y pregunten, ¿lo que quieren tomar fotos? Pues ya estoy aquí parado. <risa> la, es por primera vez que grabamos esto, no del primero. Y es por cuatro años hemos traído gente y después la critica, me critican por no grabar las cosas. Por egoísta, Frau, por egoísta. Por egoísta, ya. Hay que venir y oír. And, may, and you know, help them become school teachers, and then the Maitreya wow. left. And I have never been able to find, by the way, any information about the Maitreya. There's a lot of stuff about Ramon Emeterio, but no, no de Maitreya. Yo yeah. tenía, tenía una pregunta que la acabo de pensar ahora. Cuando estuviste haciendo la, la investigación, tuviste la oportunidad de, de entrevistar a familiares de algunas de estas mujeres de varias generaciones más adelante. O? No, actually, I've been trying to track the, the descendants of Mercedes Mota using U.S. Census records and Ancestry.com, believe it or not, because Mercedes ends up leaving Santo Domingo in 1919 during the occupation with Anteras, four children. She mm. brings them all to the United States. Um, and settles in the Bronx, actually. Uh, it's really fascinating. And she lives there from 1919 to 1942. So that's, you know, a long time, right? That's like two, more than two decades. And then she moves to Cedarville, New Jersey, where she lives until 1964 when she passes away. Um, and so her, she never had children, but her daughter, her sister's children, one ended up enlisting, by the way, in the U.S. Army and serving during World War I. Here's an irony, right? The mm -hmm. Dominican Republic is occupied by the United States, and this young man, he's a little boy, he's like 16, 18, um, enlists and serves in the U.S. military as part of the World War I troops um, while he was in school in Pennsylvania. Um, her, her eldest niece marries a Russian Jewish man. Her second oldest niece marries another Russian Jewish man. Um, and I haven't found, and her fourth, the nephew, the other young son, goes back to Santo Domingo and marries a Dominican woman. So his line is somewhere in Santo Domingo, but I have been trying to find the Cohens, the Mota Cohen, you know, line, because I'm convinced that they must have her stuff from Cedarville, New Jersey, and I want it because I, I want to know. You know, the other thing about Mercedes that's a fascinating story, Josie, is that, um, We've now, and I say we because one of my collaborators, uh, a fellow researcher in the Ilonka Nasidi Perdomo, 
um, she and I are trying to do work on sort of Dominican lesbian feminist history. And we're pretty convinced that Mercedes was actually a lesbian, yeah. and that she was went, moved to Cedarville to live with her partner, mm. sort of away from her family after she had raised her children, you know, her her sister's children, like her children, right? She finished, she had them all, y ahora se fue a vivir su vida. Because we found photographs of her with, with her friend mm -hmm. who lived with her mm. for many years. Que no saben el bochinche de Betance. Les voy a contar. De hecho, es doctoral dissertation en el Spanish Department en Yumas. Cuando una de las hermanas de, de Betance se iba a casar, se iba a casar con un español, eh, estaba registrada como mixta y la familia Betance, no Betance, porque Betance se molestó, trajeron a toda la familia Betance de República Dominicana para decir que ella era blanca. Pero ellos eran morenos, ellos eran afrodescendientes. Yeah, pero eh, le cambiaron el race sí. y se pudo casar con el español. Porque él era dominicano también, en un lado. Y él en realidad escribe a Demetri y dice: Porque se ve que nosotros tenemos la, la yeah. tinta. Es claro. Para Betán será claro, para la familia. Porque él era, ¿sabes? Él era un pan-intelliano, afro-intelliano liberacionista. Es parte de ese movimiento con Antonio Fermín. Well, anyway, so, so the so the question is that I've tried to like find her descendants because I, she, I know she wrote. I've got, I recently found letters that she wrote to her friend in Santo Domingo about her life in Cedarville. I have like seven of them finally. That just happened last year when I went away. When Aaron was saying like she went away, that's what I was doing. So that was like another major coup. Like that, that took me like twelve years of like begging this woman, I know you have these letters, please let me see them. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, and she finally let me see them. You know, finalmente me cogió la confianza y me lo permitió ver y leer y todo eso. But I know that there's you some letters. You make copy of that letter? Muchacho, que sigue. Okay, I was like, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I've seen them, I wanted to Okay. Last question. Las 10,000 mujeres que fueron escogidas para exilio. No son diez mil personas que estaban afuera y algunas cinco mil eran exiliadas, mujer y hombre. Right. So oh, okay. how was that? How were? They, how did they make it out? Mm -hmm. how, well, like my, I'll tell you the story of my mom. I think there's a lot of different stories, but my mom was working at the only newspaper in the country, El Caribe. She was an agente de publicidad, mm -hmm. which basically meant that her job was to go around and get businesses to to pay for advertising. This was not a choice, by the way. She didn't. She didn't have to be a tremendous saleswoman. She had to show up at the carnicería talita and said. Compañero, usted quiere poner su anuncio en el Caribe, which is saying, you want to give your contribution to the regime, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the answer was yes. This month I'll give X, okay? So, mm -hmm. you know, this is the reality, right? Even mm -hmm. for people like my mom. So she's working there. She's a young person. She's supporting her family. This is the job that she's doing. She's only 21 or so, 20, and she has this boyfriend who is a medical student from Venezuela, and he's part of a group of medical students from Venezuela and Colombia. And the president of Venezuela and Trujillo had beef yep. because he tried to assassinate one of them by putting a pipe bomb in the guy's car, right? So Trujillo decides that these men must go from Colombia and Venezuela. Working at the newspaper, my mother happens to hear that this is on the agenda, that these guys are either going to go or be gone. Right. <laughs> yeah. O se van o se van, right? So my mom goes to tell her novio, Oye, fulano, me enteré que ustedes deben, what she didn't realize, that entre fulano, as always, había un pillo, 
whose job it was to report on, you know, right? Because this is the nature of, of a repressive regime. So he tells on my mom, and my mom's second cousin twice removed was married to a military man who tells her, Oye, Elena, you know, tu está en peligro. So basically, one of her cousins was married to one of the Sosua Jews who had come in the you know, 1940s, who had family in, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. So they were supposed to put her on a plane to Caracas. She gets to the airport, and they're like, no, no, you're going to New York. <laughs> and she ends up living in Brooklyn in this Hasidic Jewish family. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> where not only does she not speak English, they don't speak Spanish, you know, and she's like, where am I? How did this happen here, you know? Um, and she was, no se sabe lo que pasó con el novio. Pero mami se tuvo que ir. But she, she got here because of this, you know, series of connections with her cousin who was married to military, who reported to her, the cousin, listen, you better tell Elena, she's, they almost ran her off the road. Like, you know, a series of things happened that finally, you know, made it clear she has to go. Wow. And so they, you know, they basically used. So is this story written somewhere? Do you no. have it written somewhere, no. woman? No, <laughs> that's no. a story on its own. That's a book on its own, right? That's the book I should write. No. <laughs> and where were you born then? In Brooklyn. Wow. My parents went on a train. There was a recent <laughs> New York Times article about trains and romances and marriages, and like, you know, my parents went on the one nine train coming out of born Brooklyn into Manhattan. Train. Look at that. <laughs> Not born on it, but you know, probably begun on it. <laughs> 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 So she got out because of this, this Jewish connection, actually, the Jewish diaspora and the vinculos con los dominicanos. Like, they le dieron puerta, basically, because there was no one else. She was the first one in her family. Well, thank you for coming to Holyoke. Thank it's always an honor and a privilege to hear you and to have you in this area. Um, lucky to, you know, call you as part of our network here. So, um, my sister feminist. So, thank you. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Gracias. You heard Gineta Candelario presenting Cien Años de Feminismos Dominicanos. A Hundred Years of Dominican Feminisms at the Holyoke Public Library. I want to thank Manuel Frau Ramos from El Sol Latino, Maria Pagan, Director of the Holyoke Public Library, and Jose Saavedra for the technical assistance to make possible the production of this special feature of the Radio Plasma Podcast. I'm your producer and host, Johan Rashi Vega.